2: Hello, hello. Um, Good to be back doing the nose. We actually were noseless for two weeks. Who else? Is is Voldemort noseless? I feel like Voldemort has no nose. Uh, That's a subject for another day. All right, so uh, today we are going to devote our attentions to two different works which are available uh, to you now on your TV screen and other formats as well. Um, one of them is by Bo Burnham. One of them is by Steven Soderbergh. We'll tell you a lot about them. But first, let me tell you a lot about our wonderful panel today. today. It's Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Uh, and uh, we're going to get going here. We're going to begin with Inside. Uh, inside is uh, Bo, comedian Bo Burnham's highly, highly self-referential metacognition-filled comedy special on Netflix. It is nominally about being trapped indoors during the pandemic and trying to create comedy uh, using multimedia. Uh, I I think probably we will will all agree that it's much more about being trapped inside Bo Burnham uh, and what that's like. Uh, And uh, we're going to just, before we get the panel going on this, we're going to have actually Bo Burnham welcome you to the conversation.
1: Hi. Welcome to uh, whatever this is. Um, I've been working for the last couple months um, testing this camera and testing lights and writing and I've decided to uh, try to make a new special for real. Um, It's not gonna be a normal special because there's no audience and there's no crew. It's just uh, me and my camera and you and your screen uh, the way that, that that our lord intended um, and the whole special will be will be filmed in this uh, room and instead of being filmed in a single night it will be filmed in uh, however long it takes to finish I hope you uh, enjoy it I hope this special can maybe do for you what it's done for me these last couple months, which is uh, to distract me from wanting to put a bullet into my head with a gun. So, yeah, thank you.
2: Not the only meditation on suicide, which occurs during the special, uh, which is you know, certain parts. Uh, Gary Shandling for the metacognition, uh, the visuals I think are very Spike Jones. Uh, and the overall vibe is kind of Ted Kaczynski. Uh, but there's a lot of Charlie Kaufman and, and, and other you know high, highly introspective sort of fourth wall attacking um, auteurs uh, wrapped into all of this. Uh, I should say, if you've never seen Bo Burnham, he is uh, 30 years old. He's six foot five, which I, I think allows him to do certain Spike Jones kinds of things without having to make little tiny doors. Uh, and um, he is very, very musically adept. Uh, He writes songs, he sings songs, he performs them. He can do all of this uh, without leaving the house. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's actually actually also a pretty good actor. I enjoyed him in uh, Promising Young Women. So uh, let's get the panel going on this. And Rebecca, why don't you get us started here? Uh, I don't know if if you're like me, I wasn't really interested in seeing another sort of trapped indoors pandemic comedy special. I feel like Saturday Night Live started mining that, you know, during the height of the lockdown. But I was so I was gratified to find out that's not really what this is.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I kind of feel like we're winding down from the cultural outpourings of people trapped inside. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, this, this might be interesting. I like Bo Burnham. I've always liked Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham and I are the same age. So I've always found that he's saying things that specifically speak to my zeitgeist far better than I could ever say, which kind of makes me hate him a little bit. Like I've always felt that way about him. I'm like, gosh, anything I can say, Bo Burnham will say better. He can sing it better. He's very clever. So I kind of always... like gosh this guy he's just too talented it drives me nuts but watching this was like a complete departure from some of his other stuff i mean yes it it plays with the same sort of form this kind of musical comedy this meta comedy that he loves but putting him in a, a little room and having him control everything you just feel like you're kind of in his his fantasy land his fantasia of sorts and i loved it i thought it was fantastic i I laughed out loud. Uh, He really generates that I feel seen response that my generation loves to throw around all the time. But you really do feel seen watching this. Like he just says everything so perfectly to completely capture how we're all feeling. You know, I don't know if he's just playing a character here and he's kind of cosplaying our generation's collective depression or he's just depressed. But I don't think the answer matters. I think at the end, it's absolutely captures the feeling we all had of just being stuck inside with no place to like let our creativity go. And it just sort of like, it's like an Ouroboros at that point.
2: Well, James, you and I have been 30 at times. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We are, we are not currently 30. Just in general, what was your overall reaction uh, to to, the Bo Burnham special?
3: Well, I, I like Bo Burnham as well. And um, I liked it, um, but i have to say in pieces i i i found it was a little long yes to me that was really a reflection perhaps of being uh, sort of locked away and i think there's a lot of distortions like that about media uh, and comedy and film and everything is sort of like um affected by the way that people are watching things and i thought it was interesting and insightful and funny and uh it, then after about half an hour, I felt okay. I think I needed a break from it, and um, then maybe come back to it. But um, I think he's very talented. It's a very, it's a really fascinating sort of exposure of self, as well as being funny. Um, but I, I, in a way, um, I guess my reaction is um, uh, tapping into the sort of sense I have of unease about watching films. Watching material like this, not a special, for example, or, but I think it applies to films as well. It, watching them in a, a medium that I don't feel particularly comfortable with, which I know is generational as well. But I, I, I wanted to be with an audience, I guess I would say, reacting and say, well, okay, so, uh, you know, is this connecting with the audience? I was really curious about that.
2: You know, Rebecca, there's a way in which one of the things that Burnham does um, I, I think to good effect, but uh, first of all, I want to say my my take on Burnham is everything that he does to, to good effect, uh, and there's a lot of things that fall into that c- category. He is also capable of doing for tedious effect, um, and and you know one of the things that he does extremely well is anticipate a lot of the things that we're just talking about. Mm-hmm. Anticipate a lot of the things that James right. just talked about. In fact, right around the time James was getting spa- tired of the special and needing a break, specials 87 minutes long. Uh, s- right around that time there's an intermission there's a very funny sight gag that we shouldn't spoil at the intermission and then he comes back with a song a very it's Gary Shandling show kind of song about well you know we're halfway through how do you like it are you getting bored don't tell me I don't want to know <laughs> um, you know and, and and Rebecca there's a way in which he kind of anticipates you know James's wanting to hear this in front of an audience laughing he messes around with laugh tracks in a way yeah. that's meant to m- mess around with the whole question of whether this would be better with people laughing at it.
0: I mean, I would push back a little bit on the we're not watching this together because this is how we've consumed all of our media this last year. And Bo Burnham knows that everyone is streaming everything and that when you produce something that's specifically for consumption via the internet or your computer or anything like this, it it does create a conversation. It's just not. The conversation it's not the same kind of feeling you would have in a theater or in a live performance it's a different it's you know it's this extremely online culture that we've developed and i think he anticipated that and he knows that everyone's got short attention spans he knows that you know people are going to be looking at each other and looking at their watches and going gosh i kind of am running out of steam here he anticipates that he gets ahead <laughs> of it and i think that's what makes it all the, the more hilarious to me and the boredom moments those moments where it kind of he's got several longer vignettes in there where it's just him tinkering with things And I thought that actually really enhanced it because it did feel like a little microcosm of how we all felt during quarantine. Like we're kind of just putzing around, killing time, trying to do something with our time and feeling like there's just, this is the most time you're ever going to have on your hands where you're just at home with nothing to distract you. And how do you actually turn that into something worthwhile? How do you create a community out out of an empty house? And I thought all of that worked really well. And it made me pay more attention than if it had just been him telling jokes for 90 minutes.
2: You know, we're going to play one of his songs in just a second, but James, I want to come back to something that Rebecca said, because I'm I'm not sure uh, I, I feel quite the same way about it. But, but I think there is a really interesting question. How much ironic detachment does he have from the persona that he's presenting there? There are times at which it is very clear that he has a kind of chandling or Sarah Silverman style detachment that he is. He's playing a persona that's probably fairly close to his own, but he also is ridiculing it. Uh, So, I mean, there's another sort of long soliloquy about suicide in which his face is actually animated and projected onto a T-shirt that he is also (laughs) wearing, but he talks about suicide as you know, the big problem is that he doesn't enjoy it when people kill themselves, you know. And and that's obviously a thing where we are meant to laugh at, at the self-involvement of the persona. But James, you know, towards the end, there are moments where, yeah, he's starting to lose – his faith a little bit, he's starting to the whole process of putting it together uh, is we're starting to see this whole interior world of his disintegrate, not only psychically, but physically. And there's just more mess and trash all all over the place. And I find myself wondering, is how close is that to how he's feeling about things? Now, Rebecca made, I think, a very valid argument that it doesn't matter. But I'm wondering
3: what you think. Well, I, I, I would respectfully disagree with that because I think it does matter in the sense that what you're really watching in a way is a uh, is a is almost like a um, sort of therapy session uh, that is by himself, Mm -hmm. that is really um, exploring his own interests but also trying to combine it with his obvious talents and his ability to be funny and ironic and his ability to comment on currency and and uh, where things are going. And I think that it's a, it's a particularly sort of fine balance at the moment because there's almost a, a, um, a I think I feel a sort of uh, unease all the time with uh things that you're everything from poetry to music to film to comedy all of these things that somehow because of what happened this sort of psychic break that has happened over the past year and a half or so it, it's something that has somehow changed the score of what you share and what you put into your art and um i found perhaps the combination of like okay this is long enough but at the same time okay it's beginning to be very internal to you um toward the toward the end i think and that's interesting in quotes but it's it's something i i think again generationally i i'm coming to it i think Probably less internet savvy, less uh, phone savvy, you know, and not, um, not, not consuming, if you like, consuming art in the same way that I think uh, many people do now. And um, I find him interesting, but I I find I want to know what his art is really more than him. Perhaps that's what I'm saying.
2: Yeah. And, you know, he once again, I mean, he has this uncanny ability to kind of anticipate uh, all of the things that we're going to say. And at the beginning, he kind of talks a little bit about that. And he talks, you know, about something that I'm very interested in, too, right now, which is, you know, so much of art and particularly comic art involves somebody putting their honest thoughts down on paper or sharing it with an audience or speaking to a camera and saying what they're really thinking. And We're we're living at a moment where people uh, are often punished for saying what they're thinking, uh, that you're really better off editing yourself. Uh, you know and making sure he 's
3: got you, a song about that too. yeah he does he does't don 't make yourself don 't make people feel more uncomfortable than, than they already are
2: right and and they may punish you for doing that too, and I think it it that that 's the reason that i yeah like you, I think I want to know more uh about you know how much of this is is his honest take and how much of it is pose. but uh we uh-huh. should we we would be wrong to not at least share one or maybe more of the songs that he does. He really is a pretty good songwriter. Uh, you know, a song about how stinky the Internet is is maybe maybe something you think you don't need to hear, even if it's a Kurt Weill-style song, but uh, listen to a little bit of this.
1: Welcome to the Internet. What would you prefer? Would you like to fight for civil rights or tweet a racial slur? Be happy. Be
2: so, Rebecca, you know, when this song started, I thought this is going to be like a four-minute Kurt Vile song, and I could actually check my phone or something while it's going on. And then, I mean, one thing he does that I you have to give him credit for, he delivers a little bit more than he seems to be promising. I mean, some of the stuff that he winds up saying about the Internet is not kind of the hackneyed critique of the internet. It's a little bit more than that.
0: I you know that's what I really like about him is that he takes your initial hot take and then takes it one step deeper that maybe you've thought but has never been able to articulate. And I think that's what I really like about these songs that stretch on like a little bit past where they where you would expect them to go. I mean, and it's, he starts off like with something that's predictable, like a touchstone, like all of the songs have some sort of influence. It's immediately sort of, it evokes. Like in this case, like to me, I immediately thought of Baz Luhrmann and Moulin Rouge or something like that. Like this sort of suavey, You know, troubadour telling you some sort of yarn in a cabaret club. And then he just keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until it's making you think about something you've thought about a million times slightly differently. And then for me, it also always comes back around to have I actually thought this and I just don't have the language or the intelligence to articulate this the way he does. I mean, that's to me what I I kept feeling watching this was that this was someone that is able to put to words all of these feelings I've had in my 30 years, and especially over this last year, and he's done it in such a way that like it really gets in your head, and it, it messes with your psyche a little bit. And that's why I think this whole question of where is the line between art and artist—that's where, to me, I don't think it, it really does matter because it is getting—he's playing that everyman troubadour, and that's what it's that role is supposed to do—is to make it internal to you. And I think that the name inside both serves to describe what's going on in the actual show and then what it is doing to you. This is not meant to be comedy that's experienced between many people in an outside setting. It's meant to be comedy that resonates inside your specific psyche and yet it touches on all these universal themes that people are grappling with every day. And I think that's to me what made it so successful.
3: Um I think, I yeah, think go ahead. That's that's really insightful, uh, Rebecca. I I thinking of it that way, I think it, you know, it's it's almost as if the edge at the beginning is kind of like a hook to yeah. draw you into that process I think that's a, a, that's a very important way to look at it um I think um in in that sense it's almost like a, a kind of a um it's like uh, getting people who don't like poetry to 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 actually get into a poem and get uh, find out what what's being expressed I think that uh, that that it, it makes me think of that
2: I think the songs also, one, one thing that helps this work is the songs have a kind of progression and the songs toward the end are less and less funny. Uh, mm-hmm. and more and okay. more introspective. There's one called yeah. That Funny Feeling, which is about, I think, kind of the sense of impending doom, whether from climate changers or something else. Um, that um, it, it's, I don't think it's particularly funny at all, but I, I actually found it kind of musically satisfying and, and kind of riveting too. You know, the, the last few songs are a little bit more him winding things down uh, and 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 they mirror the mood change that you're seeing here. Uh, because his beard and hair get more scraggly and longer and the whole thing goes on more and more. There's also kind of a wonderful moment I don't think this is a spoiler where he announces that his decision is that he's never going to finish the special so that in fact no one is ever going to hear him saying what he's saying right now because the special will never be finished and that's the only way that he can live with the situation that he's in right now. Um, so I mean I just guess well Rebecca I don't have to ask you the question would you recommend this to another person you obviously would
0: Absolutely absolutely and I have already yeah.
2: Might <laughs> you be might you be more likely to recommend it to someone from your generation to than just anybody or do you think it, it works across the board
0: I mean no shade but yes I would <laughs> I, I do I think it works across the board on some levels but I think to have the that deep sort of internal reaction that I had I do feel that it is very specific to the millennials, zeitgeist. guys,
2: do you think that? Yeah, yeah, James. I, I know where do you where do you come down. Finally, is it worth eighty seven minutes of a person's time? Or,
3: well, it's really interesting uh, you know, what Rebecca just said. You know about speaking to her generation, and uh, you know one of the things that I always find stimulating is to really find out what is moving people now that I don't really understand or that is something new that is a new direction in art or it's a new way of making movies or making uh, comedy or whatever. And so I'm intrigued about that. Um, And I find sometimes uh, great surprises and really, really enjoy that. It's an odd way to sort of, you know, it's almost like a dilettantish sampling of it in a way because generationally I didn't, I don't have quite that same connection with it, which I think is related to the sheer, uh, at least in part to the sheer volume of art that is accessible easily now. Mm. Um, And I think that that uh, is a factor for me certainly. And I would say um, still that I think perhaps had it been a little shorter for me, I would have stuck with it more. And I, I mean, I think I want to see some of the, see some of it again, the latter part of it, and and uh, in light of what Rebecca said. But um, I do think there's a different way of interpreting it and seeing it, and I think that's different from how I saw it.
2: I, I want to say this, that, that I've, I found it to be too long. Uh, I, I wish it were a little bit shorter. I wish some of the stuff was was tighter. But I, I really have a lot of respect for this because – it, it does ask que- the question that I ask over and over again about everything, including this show that we do, which is how could you do it differently? How could you take this form and do something different with it? Um, you know, I mean, this is not a Netflix comedy special uh, in, in the common understanding of this. and and I do want to say that I, I think you know his his logical, intellectual, comedic, uh, godfather is Gary Shandling, you know, who who did uh, experiment experiment with it. I mean, you know, Gary Shandling's uh, for his show. It's the one of the shows. It's Gary Shandling's show. You know, the theme was, this is the theme to Gary's show. How do you like it so far? I mean, a lot of the stuff that Burnham is doing is just clearly very much inspired uh, by what Shandling did. So uh, I was thinking about that watching this today. (laughs) I made Jonathan McPants track down this clip. It's from 2011. Uh, There's a show called The Green Room with Paul Provenza. The guests on this episode were Judd Apatow, Mark Maron, Ray Romano, Gary Shandling, and the very young Bo Burnham. And so uh, we're gonna play a little exchange for you between Bo Burnham, Gary Shandling, and I think you hear Romano come in at the end.
1: I'm of the, uh, the younger generation, so I just wonder for all of you, uh, who are you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right, now you can talk.
1: <laughs>
3: it's so good. It's it, it's so
1: good because it's so mutual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, uh, the truth is, I saw your your special like just a, a couple weeks ago. I was really into what you were doing, and I said, "Now who is this?" And then he thought you were Emo Phillips. <laughs>
2: So, Rebecca, there, there it is, the kind of little generational uh, rubbing against each other. But there's also a sense these are two guys who, in their comedy, really are asking some questions about also what is it like to be a halfway decent human being? And how can I be funny without completely sacrificing all of my values?
0: I mean, I think both Shanley and Bo Burnham are the answer to this problem we've run into in recent years with comedy where, you know, you can't be a woke comic and comedy is dead because you have to be careful about what you're joking about. And I've always pushed back on that because I think if you're truly funny, you can talk about anything. And I think Bo Burnham and Gary Shanley do a fantastic job of that, of being so referential that they can kind of take on the current cultural moment and address some of the criticism that people are are coming up with over the years and get ahead of it with their comedy and, and are still exquisitely funny. And I think Bo Burnham does a fantastic job of answering all of these things, like being a problematic person that should have been canceled a bunch of times. Like he's able to filter all of what's happening in our cultural consciousness and, and come out with something that's genuinely funny without being offensive. And, and I think that like that good human comedy is very successful when done correctly. And I think that's what Bo has done here.
2: All right, Bo Burnham's inside. We gotta stop there. Um and we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about Steven Soderbergh's new film.
1: You told me a year ago that
2: All right, so um, no sudden move is uh, Steven Soderbergh's latest movie. He has made uh, so many different movies. This movie is so many different movies. It's kind of a buddy movie. There really are sort of two guys played by Benicio del Toro and Don Cheadle, who who are kind of you know these mismatched buddy figures in the film. It's definitely a heist movie, very much in the spirit of the Ocean's movies. Uh, you got you you got to watch uh, everything very very carefully to understand what's happening. Uh, it's full of social commentary, particularly about the exploitation. Like exploitive nature of political leadership and capitalist leadership, very much in the mode of, all, I don't know, Aaron Brockovich or The Insider uh, or Special Effects, uh, all Soderbergh movies. Uh, this one is, is about uh, has some commentary about urban urban redevelopment. Urban Renewal, which Don Cheadle says, his character says, you mean Negro removal. Uh, it's all of those things, plus some comedy, plus some interpersonal stuff going on with people. There's so much happening in this movie. Oh, yes. And also the the suppression of the invention of catalytic converters. Uh, all right. So uh, let's hear a little clip and then we want to hear what the panel thinks about it. So here you're going to hear Benicio Del Toro as Ronald Russo. Don Cheadle as Kurt Goines, and Kieran Culkin as Charlie. These are three thugs kind of recruited to keep a family on the premises while something's happening.
1: Let's be clear.
3: The only thing I'm worried about is this thing getting (laughs) because of you. What's that supposed to mean? It's not your fault. You were born like that. Born like what? Uh, Okay. All right. This isn't why we were hired. Who did hire us, Charlie? Huh? You going to tell me straight up this ain't some Frank Capelli production? No, 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 it's uh, some outfit out of Illinois wants to expand to Detroit. The guy pitched it like getting on the ground floor kind of thing. They grow their presence and we have an in kind of thing. What's with the f-ing eye? Sometimes when people lie, they tend to overexplain, kind of thing.
2: All right. So, James, I, I, we don't have time to have a big conversation about Steven Soderbergh because he's made so many movies and so many different kinds of movies. You could be a, a Steven Soderbergh fan and I could be a Soder, Steven Soderbe- Soderbergh fan. And our five m- movies would each bear no relationship to, to one another because he just works in so many different genres. But I mean, just give, give us a sort of overall sense of, of how this one worked for you.
3: Well, I liked it uh, a lot. I liked the characters, I liked the atmosphere, and lots of features about it. Um, and I think um, is one of the one of the S- Soderbergh films that I really like, mainly for the characters. Um, that they're they're really in in a way they're kind of uh, you know uh, predictable, but on the other hand, they're so deeply drawn um i you know it was a very satisfying movie to watch that said i found myself lamenting cinema in a way about it uh i am i had to watch it i know it is available in theaters but i had to watch it on a small screen Um, and it reminded me of the trajectory that Soderbergh has been taking i think which is to me a kind of uh, uh, on the one hand a as a celebration of cinema in himself and what the the sort of stories he picks up and the stories he tells but also a diminishment of the the whole sort of sphere of art of cinema and by diminishment i mean the visual style of the film which i i think was um very much geared to his way of I think I think he's very wedded to electronic cinema and by I think he watches everything on smaller screens I I sometimes wonder if he ever watches things on big screens over the years I think he's become more and more um if you like a kind of internal thing and he's got the genre he's got the characters he's got great actors and he's got a good script and I have to say about the story I the I couldn't if I were pressed I couldn't really explain the story <laughs> to anyone. It was really complex. I think I'd have to see it at least once, maybe twice more to figure out the connections. But it it has the feeling of cleverness about it that, you know, you you uh, that it it has a knowing quality that um I think I liked it that enhanced it. But I I overall I have the feeling that it's a film that's going to disappear in the pool as it were.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing that Soderbergh has been doing, I think, quite a bit of in recent years is producing television series, uh, yes. which has probably got him thinking quite a bit about how things work on uh, on smaller screens. So, so, Rebecca, how about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I really liked the aesthetics of it. It felt like a classic film without being hokey or overly stylized. I love the performances. The cast was fantastic. The casting was great. So many of my favorites in it. But I was confused. It felt like AP oceans. Like I was struggling at times to figure out what was going on. I wish I'd had the time to watch it twice because I feel like I could be a lot more articulate on what was actually happening if I'd seen it twice. But just on my one cursor review, I appreciated it as a film. I enjoyed it. It was certainly something that I wasn't bored during, but I was confused. I was bored, but confused, not bored, but confused.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm so reassured to have both of you say that because towards the end of the movie, various large sums of money are produced in certain locations. <laughs> and I'm looking at that and I felt like I've been watching kind of a three card Monty guy on the street and I, just, I didn't have any idea where anything had been. Yeah. <laughs>
3: like, yeah, so I mean that's I th- that's one of the interesting things I think about telling a story that uh the way that uh, Soderbergh does that um it's a fine line to tread that on the one hand, you don't want to make it too obvious. And on the other hand, you also um, want to get people to understand the story, but he seems to feel that the story, that the detail of the story is, is just coincidental really, that what is happening is the expression of the characters and what happens to the characters and how they go through the story is the actual bones of the story don't, don't seem to matter.
2: Yeah, although you know, Rebecca, I feel like there's a risk there, and I think, and I, I'm I'm an unreliable narrator on this movie because I, I really, in some ways, me, I needed to be more alert when I was watching it. But <laughs> but um, but you know, it seemed to me that yes, I mean, he's trying to do a whole bunch of different things here. It, it is supposed to work somehow as a heist movie. Although I guess I think James is right that you know, if you don't understand at the end what happens, that just means maybe you'll watch it again or something. It's not this you know, huge fatal flaw. Um you know but there's also a way in which he's trying to do so much more so there is this whole subplot about about renewal in Detroit that's based on real things. There was a neighborhood called Black Bottom uh, that was, in fact, essentially eradicated with federal monies. Uh, And then there also was this thing called the smog conspiracy that involved a bunch of different automakers essentially not implementing pollution controls in order to save money and really kind of putting people's lungs and lives and health at risk uh, in so doing. Uh, We should say there's a big surprise piece of casting that we are not going to wreck for you uh, in in terms of, of that particular plot. But that's like a completely separate social issue from the Detroit, you know, neighborhood real estate uh, issue, sitting on top of a heist movie, sitting on top of a movie about a lot of different <laughs> human relations with, you know, this kind of big sprawling cast with the Ray Liotta is on there for, you know, a couple of glasses of wine and a cup of coffee or something, and and you know he's gone, and you know he's kind of fun to watch when he's doing that kind of a role. Brendan Fraser, who's kind of making a comeback, playing some very dark characters, <laughs> is there playing a dark, but there's like you don't really feel like you get enough of. Of any of that, because you're constantly be being given little sips of different things. Yeah.
0: I almost wish it was a miniseries, because I feel like there's so many fantastic themes going on, but they just mm-hmm. weren't able to get mm-hmm. deep enough with any of them. And I felt the least successful was actually the automotive stuff. And this is probably because I know literally nothing about cars or the automotive industry, but I was so confused until the very end what the whole deal was with this carburetor or whatever it was. I don't even know the name. Like, I am this ignorant when it comes to car stuff. But because I didn't know any of this stuff, I didn't know about the smog conspiracy. I was left kind of scratching my head during a lot of that. Whereas the, the racial tension in Detroit, that was a lot more compelling to me. And I especially liked, there were very like fantastic subtle moments where the black characters conveyed that the real the only sense of trust in the movie that was yes. ever exchanged were between black characters, like everyone's double crossing each other, triple crossing each other. But there were two little moments, one when there's a chase scene happening through a kitchen mm-hmm. and the Black cook looks at John Cheadle's character, Goins, and points where Ray Liotta's character has gone. And it's just like that quick one-off, like, I can trust you, you can trust me. Another scene when they're headed to a hotel, the bellhop kind of gives Goins the whole rundown of what's happening. And I really thought that that was very effective in showing the camaraderie of the Black community in face of great adversity on a political and a structural sense. But the, the car stuff, which really is, you know, the the whole center of the heist was just like so over my head. And I was so confused about all that stuff. I was Googling. What do they mean smog? I mean, I was just like all over the map with that. So I feel like it would have, if he'd been able to go deeper on some of these
3: things, it would have been more successful in terms of me knowing what was going on. I, I think, I think that's a really important point, Rebecca, because I, I think that actually the concatenation of themes in the film that if you did know, I mean, I grew up during that period and and, uh, I did know some of the stories, but the linkage between uh, preventing pollution controls, um, black removal from neighborhoods in Detroit, exploitation, uh, crooked city government, all of these things, the list is a mile long. (laughs) And they are really connected. These wow. are people who all do these things because they could, and because they had allies who helped them do it. And who who cares if if people were dying of lung disease? the The issue was that we weren't going to disturb the production line and harm our profits. And and you know what what about uh, why is Detroit suddenly got all of these black workers who've been brought from the south? To work in an industry that was acting like this. I mean, there's all kinds of themes there. And I think definitely a, a series could expand on that. It's kind of like, you know, Soderbergh is a v- voracious absorber of all of these things. And mm. so it's clear he knows these things and he's aware of these conspiracies and these uh, sort of assumed social controls. And you sort of look at Detroit now and you look at what happens in Detroit now and you look at, you know, where where uh, where the power is and all of these things. And also the automobile industry itself still, you know, and the manipulations that are going on. Um, I think that it is really fascinating and it's a kind of shorthand for uh, Soderbergh and he makes this film. And that's why to me it comes up to be about all the characters. It's like the story recedes into the background because mm-hmm. the chances are that of the people who are watching this don't know that history.
2: This is a film, just to sort of put it in perspective, that has somewhere around 15 to 20 at least somewhat interesting characters in it uh, in a whole bunch of different locations. And it's only 28 minutes longer Than Bo Burnham's thing that has like (laughs) one person rattling around a room for eighty-seven minutes. So, um, so yeah, I feel like you know, there's I I like a lot of Soderbergh movies, and I I he can handle big casts and big themes with movies like Traffic uh, and Contagion. But those also stay in a certain lane. You know, there isn't like a lot of funny stuff going on in either one of those movies, or you know, there's they're not trying to be sort of colorful or engaging or anything like an Ocean's movie or something like that. Uh, And 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 I I thought that. some of the problem here was, yeah you you could pick maybe two lanes, but you can't pick like five lanes, you know and and, yes. and and I think this does that and its winds up cheating all of the different things that that it could conceivably be. The other thing I just have, want to quickly say was weirdly. Reminiscent of the very recent season four of the TV series Fargo, uh, the, both movies are about black and Italian crime lords, essentially butting heads and locking horns. One in Detroit, one in Kansas City, one in 1950, one in 1954. You, you know, they both have really terrific casts. I actually thought Fargo did this a little bit better. They managed to really get me to engage a little bit more with the characters. Now, as Rebecca said, that's a series. You know, they have multi multiple episodes to do that And I think doing this in 115 minutes is like really really hard. <laughs> I
3: think I think that's true. You know, there was recently I can't remember the name of it, but the film about um uh, about Robert Moses or roughly based on Robert Moses oh, yeah. in, and and his activities in Brooklyn and New York. Mo- mother, motherless Brooklyn. Mother Motherless Brooklyn, right? I mean, that um I thought that was, wow, somebody's paying attention to these serious problems and unmasking somebody who's a hero to some people, but who never really was a hero, like certain defense secretaries who just passed away. (laughs) And, and, you know, like people think these people are heroes and I bang my head against the wall. You know, you want people to learn more about this and see that, that, you know, Robert Moses ruined cities uh, with what he did. And he might have been a great engineer in his mind, but he ruined people's lives. Mm. And, um, you know, this is the underlying theme, really, in No Sudden Move, in a way. And, and the question is how do you get people to really see this and to actually, you know, not have a, uh, a, a false impression created by sycophants who want to create the idea that this person did something good? Um, and, and so Steven Soderbergh has made a thriller, which is great. But he doesn't touch on who was responsible for all this stuff.
2: Um, true also. And we're still not going to reveal the secret identity of the guy in the cast. But that particular actor recently made a movie that was kind of a love letter to the auto industry. Yes. <laughs> including indeed. one. And so uh, it's kind of just interesting that he's he's walking both sides uh, of that. I think
3: you let a, a small cat
2: out of the bag. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, not... Depends
0: how savvy your listeners are.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know, Rebecca, I think James has it right. And I think you, you might have said it too. This You probably have to watch this twice, right?
0: Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I, I wouldn't say I, I'm not going to do that. Like, I did enjoy the movie. The acting was fantastic. The writing yeah. was great. So I'm sure it is something I'll revisit because I I am so now very curious. Like, it, it has made me want to learn more about everything that was going on in Detroit during this time period, which I think is, you know, a sign of a good film. It's a sign of any good art it makes you want to explore more. So I will certainly revisit it and educate myself better on this, but I I do think it's a difficult movie to talk about after only seeing it one time and there's just so much going
2: on. I have to yeah. say, I have to say it's a much stupider movie and it doesn't have any history lessons, but I kind of like Logan Lucky, which is one of his other recent movies. Mm. That was a pure, oh, right. it's a yeah. pure heist movie. It's just stupid entertainment all the way through. Uh, but uh, as heist movies go, I thought it worked pretty well. I don't even like heist movies that much. All right, so <laughs> we should probably take a break here so you guys will have some time to make some recommendations uh, on the other side Why don't we do that. And we are back, so i got to say some thank yous. Uh, Kat Pastor is here in the studio with me. She's our technical producer. She's the one making it all happen and sound so good. Uh, Jonathan McPants is always... Uh, unless he's on vacation or something, he's always the producer of The Nose, and he is the producer of The Nose today. So uh, thanks very much to him. Uh, we're going to be off on um, Monday, uh, f- which is sort of nominally 4th of July or something, uh, and then we're going to come back, uh, but we'll be live on Tuesday. I'm not 100% sure what we're doing, but we'll be live. Uh, so it's time to make some recommendations, some endorsements, or whatever. Uh, so Rebecca, why don't you get us going?
0: So I have been really enjoying Parkville Market in Hartford uh, recently this summer. It's just fantastic. You love good food, great music. It is essentially like an adult food court and they have every offering under the sun to choose to eat. Every time I go, I get something different. And then I enjoy everything I have. So I keep going and just getting more and more food each time I go. So I don't think that's so great for, you know, the summer, but I've really, really been enjoying it. Fantastic music, as I said. So if you haven't checked out Parkville Market in Hartford, I strongly encourage you to do so.
2: Hey, Rebecca, maybe go a little bit further, because one thing that I find when I get overwhelmed by the choices um, and I don't really know what I should get. And sometimes I'm just completely paralyzed. So I don't know. Do you have one or two favorites you might want to point people at?
0: I mean, I'm not going to remember the name specifically, but the poke restaurant, the, Mm -hmm. the vendor that sells poke is fantastic, delicious, fresh fish, yummy. There is a delicious fried chicken sandwich stop that I've had. I mean, I've now eaten it all. Like I have, I have gone through pretty much everything there and it's all great. So I really think you can't go wrong. And yes, it's a little overwhelming, but go with a group of people. Everybody gets something different. Make sure you know everyone's vaccinate or whatever and share food. It'll be great.
2: Right. The Parkville Market. Uh, yeah, I'm intrigued by the Sal- uh, Salvadoran place. I haven't been there yet. Oh, but, yes. Uh, delicious. Uh, I've had that kind of food in other places. Okay. You're were, you were, you're still recommending, right?
0: I have one more recommendation for you. It's a book I recently read. Uh, I believe it came out in 2020. It's called A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet, And it's a very short little book, um, really kind of in the vein of Bo Burnham, adolescent scorn and existentialism. It's about a group of kids that have parents that are kind of hedonists, and they kind of create their own society, and then there's a, a light, plausible dystopia that happens, and it then kind of shifts into an allegory for the Book of Revelations, and it's really clever, very well written, great characterization, and it's short. So if you're looking for something quick to pick up on the beach this weekend, I highly recommend A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet.
2: Great. Uh, James Hanley, what do you have for us?
3: Well, first of all, um, I guess being uh, now retired uh, cinema enthusiast, I am actually uh, encouraging everybody to go back into theaters and watch movies on the big screen. I've been doing that occasionally on every opportunity I could, and it's a, it's as exciting as it ever was to me, and I I never have, uh, I've never faltered in my enjoyment of doing that. I do have to watch films on small screens but the big screen makes a huge difference in the sound everything about it so please come back everybody to wherever they're showing movies on the big screen. And the other thing I would say is to remind people of my sort of hobby horse, which is farm markets. Um, the uh, Brian and Anita of Tobacco Road Farm are still uh, big figures at the Mansfield market, and Mansfield has a number of other vendors there. Every Saturday afternoon at three on the green by uh, the um, Uh, city hall, the town hall. Um, It's really exciting to be seeing people there and meeting people outside and feeling that it's safe again to do that. But the other market too, um, uh, which is favorite is Coventry is back. And um, the two vendors I think I was so excited to see again uh, was um, the uh, amazing Aki. Yeah. uh, The Aki Patties to have Aki Patties again. Oh, it's such a delight and uh, lots of other flavors too. And um, uh, Paul and Joanne at uh, the, the farm, uh, the Purity Farm, oh, yeah. who have the most incredible fruit, uh, I mean, fruit and vegetables, uh, they sell out all the time. So Gurley, it starts this year at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings.
2: Um, I'll piggyback onto that and say the West End Farmers Market uh, here in Hartford is uh, terrific. And this year uh, they've added uh, some vendors, including a farm from Roxbury. I don't happen to know their name. I'm just kind of getting used to them. But they are spectacular. Uh, they still have Sweet Acre and a lot of the other places that you like if you know that market. It's Tuesdays from 4 to 7. This Roxbury farm has some of the most Delicious produce uh, that I've seen uh, in a really long time. Rebecca, your uh, book recommendation is reminding me, and I bet you you've already read this, and I'm I'm about halfway through it, so maybe I shouldn't endorse it, but I'm really enjoying Normal People by Sally Rooney. Uh, I have read it, but people keep
0: telling me it's worth doing.
2: Yeah, I I I, I, I like the way she writes. It anyway, it's a uh, uh, really terrific. Uh, my main recommendations are going to be this. Uh, this one, it's almost not culture; it's more journalism, but it's it's so interestingly put together that I think it stands uh, the the, the test. It's called Day of Rage. It's on the New York Times website. You just click over on the thing that says video on the far right side. This is, I think, the most comprehensive video compilation and, and interestingly edited and and stirringly uh, and unsettlingly narrated um, kind of mini documentary about January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And you know they're just they they were able to access I think like a thousand different video sources because everybody who was doing bad things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was for some reason or other videoing all the bad things that they were doing and, and law enforcement has body cam stuff and the FOI'd stuff and they really this is a really, really comprehensive uh, look at what happened, plus some real analysis that shows, it's very, very chilling. It shows you how close this came from, t- t- came to tipping into a much, much more dire scenario. It shows you also just how incredibly badly the site was protected at that time, and and how slow the response was, how slow people were to understand uh, how much trouble uh, we, were in, we were in that day. So it's called Day of Rage. It's on the New York Times website. I, I totally recommend it. It's like 40 minutes long, too, So, but it's like watching a movie. Uh, and then the other thing is this is like similar to some of the recommendations that the panelists uh, have done too. Um, I, I sort of feel like you know we've never had so much music available to us in, in the history of humankind, but we all have kind of a tendency to listen to the same I don't know fifty to 100, 100 songs <laughs> over and over again. So you know everybody who's using a streaming service I happen to use use tidal, uh, but whatever you're using you know most of them kind of algorithmically shove a lot of music at you, and I would really recommend that you you avail yourself of that and. you 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 know, forty to sixty percent of what gets shoved at you isn't really going to be something that you like, but the the remainder will be a series of sonic discoveries that you can add to playlists and kind of flesh things out. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the ones that I've discovered recently because they they are they are suited to my tastes and musical needs at the moment. I think it's more important that you find your stuff. But just don't forget, no matter if you're using a streaming service. Almost invariably, they, you know, try to tell you about some other stuff that you might like. And I know that's sort of a creepy, annoying, intrusive, Orwellian kind of feature. But it's also very, very useful. And... and, And Discover some new music this summer and add it to your playlist, and you'll be really happy that you did. I am very happy to have spent an hour in the company of two of my favorite panelists, Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications, freelance writer. James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to Mr. Pants. And we will be back on Tuesday.
3: Talk about Torrington,
1: Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon,
3: Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.